Hey, Cracked fans. With the summer months just around the corner, we know all of you are beginning to think about how you can best maximize your chances to improve your game with the warm weather. Well, thankfully, we here at Cracked Rackets are so excited to tell all of you about the 254 Tennis Camp happening this summer at Baylor University. Now, over the course of three weeks in June, starting June 12th through the 16th and ending June 26th through the 30th, you'll have the opportunity to learn from from some of the best coaches in the business in an all-encompassing tennis experience. You'll have the opportunity to improve each and every part of your game, whether that be on the singles court, whether that be on the doubles court, through drilling, through point play, match play as well. You'll also, of course, receive a free t-shirt for participating in the camp, but also have the chance to see yourself broadcasted as our Crack Rackets team will be providing coverage of the final day each week at this 254 tennis camp. Again, you'll have the opportunity to learn from some of the best coaches in the business. I promise Coach Michael Woodson and the Baylor team going to make it an extraordinarily enjoyable time. How can you get signed up today? Well, you can learn more information by visiting the Baylor website by going to baylor.edu slash athletics slash tennis camp. Again, that's baylor.edu slash athletics slash tennis camp to sign up today. Now, this camp open to any and all entrants, but limited only by age, number, grade level, and or gender. Again, you can learn more about this camp by going to baylor.edu slash athletics slash tennis camp today. Don't miss out, folks. Going to be three very exciting, fun weeks of tennis down at Baylor University. Be sure to sign up for the 254 Tennis Camp happening at Baylor today. Welcome to the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Monday, May 30th. Now, as you listeners can tell, this has not been a daily podcast over the past few days, and unfortunately, that means we've missed recapping the first few days and first couple of rounds of the year's second Grand Slam, the 2022 French Open. Going to carry on whether we're able to cover it on this podcast or not, and fortunately for me, the reason we haven't been able to cover it is because I have been in Enjoying my time on the broadcast of the 2022 National Championships. Hopefully, all of you tuned in to the final weeks of the 2022 college tennis season. It was such a pleasure for me to get the chance to be on the call for a national championship. And the reason I was able to do that is because so many of you listeners continue to tune in throughout the course of the year. And it was such a pleasure for me to get the chance to meet so many of you in Champaign. I remain immensely flattered by how complimentary so many of you were. How willing so many of you were to joke around with us, to tolerate our nonsense here at Cracked Rackets. Needless to say, my ego is feeling healthy as I am finally back in Champaign. I will, uh, back in Indianapolis, excuse me, that shows you where my brain is. And I will admit when I woke up this morning, it did feel like I was hit by a bus. It was some long hours in Champaign with some fantastic tennis. And again, well worth the eight consecutive hours of broadcasting I think we did on that semifinal Friday. Nevertheless, we're ready to re 
focus here at Cracked Rackets. Turn our attention to that 2022 French Open, of course. We've already reached the second week of the year's second Grand Slam. We've had drama unfold across the board, so much so that it's going to be a two-mini-break Monday here as we try to play catch-up with the French Open. On this edition of the show, we're going to focus on the men's side of the bracket. And certainly, if you tuned into Sunday's fourth-round action, what a day of tennis we had. Rafael Nadal pushed to the fifth set. Ultimately, he overcomes the test that was Felix Ogier Aliassim. We saw Novak Djokovic continue to cruise through his first Grand Slam of the season to set up that Nadal-Djokovic quarterfinal matchup. All of us have been looking forward to since the draw came out. Of course, the question I also want to discuss on today's podcast, are those two the favorite to capture the title? If you watched Carlos Alcaraz against Karen Kachanov today, wow, I threw in the K. Shows you where my brain is. Karen Hatchinov, excuse me, you know he looked exceptional. And he, given his track record of success, not only on the clay, but throughout the course of this season, is this going to be the crowning moment? That's something we want to discuss. And by the way, who's going to emerge out of the bottom half of the draw? Coming into the tournament, we thought Stefano Tsitsipas would probably be the favorite. Has he really looked the part, though, through the first week of action? Are there any others? Perhaps number two seed, Daniil Medvedev, who may challenge him in this second week of play. As you can tell, plenty for us to discuss here on today's show. And if we're going to try and cover all of that within one podcast, you know I better have some help to do so. Thankfully, I do once again on today's show. And joining me on the podcast is a man you know best from the 2 a.m. hour of the 2019 New House Radio lineup. You also may know him as the host of Monday Match Analysis, host of 3A Tennis Show, a returning champion here and former mini break host here at our Cracked Racket Shows. It's our friend, Gil Gross. Gil, welcome back to the podcast. How are you doing, my friend? Grusky, I'm good. Good to be back doing a late night pod. Uh, I didn't, you know, it wasn't really necessary for you to get an assistant after all the, <laughs> after all the, f- the uh, profile building you did in Champagne. I mean, I think you can, you can, you have my number. You know, you can reach me directly. All right. Well, I just asked Westoff if he if he would mind doubling up. He already files my taxes, <laughs> pays my rent, does the utilities. I was like, can you just book the shows now too? I think we all win if that's the case. Look, um, you'll be back down to earth in about a month's time. I'll make sure of it. <laughs> we both know for the record that under no circumstances, now that I've hit this plane, it's like, okay, what's the next ego boost I can find? And so agree to disagree, my friend. That said, what did keep me sane in Champagne are the updates you've had on Monday Match Analysis. And this is not something that's new to those who follow your show. And I think many of our listeners do is you try to go almost daily throughout these grand slams and uh, obviously just quickly here at the start of the show, what have you been up to? What can we expect over the second week of the, of the grand slam? Certainly, you know, three, a tennis show focused on Djokovic, Nadal. One of them is going to be eliminated after the quarterfinals. That said, you'll still have one left in the semifinals as well. Are we going to get three and MMA twice a week? All right. Something like that. Yeah. I, well, so MMA is out already uh, for for tomorrow. I mean, I've, and I've actually speaking of secretaries. Why are we recording late? Because I notice mini break podcast co-host, former host does not in the order of operations ex- proceed Monday match analysis episode for the record. If you want the <laughs> since you're exposing me for having a secretary now. Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> uh, two can play. Uh, no, I mean, there's been a lot to talk about, though. I mean, uh, you had. 
basically uh, Alcaraz and Ramos Vinolas, I thought was the the best match of the second round. Tsitsipas and Musetti was really interesting in uh, in round one. I uh, I love the storyline that Daniil Medvedev has become, and I I talked about him and what is his level of contendership this week, <laughs> and then obviously today or, or not this week, but um, you know next week, and then obviously today you just had a, a thriller with Nadal and FAA. You know, however, I'm sure we'll get into it, but both of them delivered in in the biggest ways, and now you know the tournament is not going to have any sort of traditional buildup from quarters to semis to finals. I mean, we're getting right to it. Yeah. And on, you know, biggest, biggest match of the year, really right next to the Australian open final is going to be played on Wednesday. So two things off of that before we get into today's show, and I suppose we're off to a hot, hot start here. And I appreciate you working with me through that intro for the record. That was take two on the intro. I'm a little rusty here. Haven't been going daily, so I got to refine my podcasting form. Do me a favor. Say the word tournament one more time. It's tournament and I don't really want to hear it. Here we go. Okay. Let's just do this quickly. Is it a New York thing? Like, do I have to say tournament? Would you respect me more in the tennis channel contract you sign? Or are they like, hey, we speak the Queen's English here in satellite stu- <laughs> in Studio City in California. Like it's tournament. Was that an edict from the higher powers? It's a New York thing. Okay. And, you know, it's it's Florida and Orange and and tournament. And okay. that's, but that's what how were, it goes. What were you sipping on there? And we're, I know that's Zoom. That's a great visual. It looks like milk. Say milk for me. It's uh, it's milk. Okay. that That's fine. But <laughs> I'm not drinking milk. Yeah. It's some sort of latte. Yeah. Knowing you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. A coffee connoisseur could have also worked into the intro. I can have Westoff paste it if you'd like. But no, first of all, tournament, tournament, either way. I'm just curious. We could do a Twitter poll. How do the people pronounce <laughs> it? At Gil Gross, at A.L. Gruskin. Look, I'd, I'd lose. And it would be like doing a Twitter <laughs> poll of like, does your state have good pizza and bagels, right? Uh, yeah. That it would be a similar thing. Like, do the minority of states have good pizza and bagels? Yes. Okay. Uh but, you know, power rank is on the three, right side of Hypothetically, New York, California, Michigan. If you had to guess pizza and bagel power rankings, go. Uh, New York's uh, one. I'll New concede York it right one. away. And yeah, you're a no, fool I, if you think, say anything I else. think California's two and Michigan is, is three. See, here's my contention. I think Michigan makes a better bagel. I think we're closer in proximity think, yeah, to you New know, York. That, that might be true. I think pizza-wise, I mean, we're known for the square slice. I will contend Buddy's Pizza, who hides the pepperoni under the cheese. It's the greatest surprise you'll ever receive in life is when you bite into a Buddy slice and you're like, there's pepperoni under this cheese? Let's go. Um, I'm not sold on an L.A. slice, but that's an argument again. We'll put that to it. I, I was L.A., about- LA for, for the record, I mean, L.A. just tries to be Italy. Like, L.A. doesn't even <laughs> attempt. They don't even attempt the New York pie. Yeah. It's not even – it's not even – they don't try. Respect. Right. Because sometimes you go down south, like you go to Florida, they're trying to do the New York. Yeah. And, you know, maybe just don't. <laughs> no, I believe you. I have a, one of my roommates in college 
who I get much of this material for on our Crack Rackets podcast, described himself once as the authority on authorities, as if to say, I'm just the, he was saying I'm the authority on this, on that. I was like, well, what are you not the authority on? To which his answer was, no, dude, I'm the authorities on authorities. Uh, and I was like, all right, I would say you're the authority on the bagel, on the slice. So I defer to you on this one. That said, we'll put it T-O-R Nament or T-U-R Nament. That's the Twitter poll coming out of this show. Of course, part number two here, Djokovic-Nadal, you talk about it being the match of the year. I got into this discussion with multiple fans, and it was nice to be able to be on the ground and talk to the people once again in Champaign about this Djokovic-Nadal quarterfinal and the fact that it's not happening later in the tournament. Now, maybe I'm just trying to be clever, trying to be on the other side of the argument, but I do genuinely believe that it's both A, healthier for the sport, and then B, subjectively better for my enjoyment to see this match earlier in the tournament. Now, from a ratings perspective, I understand you're blowing your wad a bit soon by having this in the quarterfinals, by not being able to sell this out on a championship Sunday. I understand that logistically. But again, subjectively, the opportunity to see, and I suppose you look on the other side of the draw, a Tsitsipas, Rude, Sinner, Medvedev, one of the players still remaining there, have the opportunity to challenge perhaps a Djokovic or a Nadal, or if it's not one of them, if it's Alcaraz or Zverev, some new permutation or combination in the final to see that challenger have that platform of the Grand Slam final. I think that's healthy for the sport. I think we need it right now. And so I actually have no qualms with this match happening this early in the tournament. Where are you with that? I'm not too upset about a Nadal-Djokovic quarterfinal. I mean, obviously, the benefit of the draw being like this is the chances that you're going to get it is higher. Uh, So, like, if we got this uh, for, I mean, you know, if it was like Nadal and Federer at the U.S. Open, right? Like, wouldn't wouldn't it have been nice if they just were next to each other in the draw one year so that we could have gotten that? Uh, at, at a certain point, what I hope doesn't happen or or I guess what I'm less excited about is um, maybe look, maybe Titipas will will deliver and and he can he can deliver an, an awesome final if he's in it against uh, Alcaraz or Djokovic or, or Nadal. But uh, if you look at like the head to heads there, he's lost, I think, his last 10 against those three opponents combined or nine of his last 10. Uh, so. Like in that respect, I would like Alcaraz maybe to be on the bottom with Tsitsipas. And then if Steph wins, fair play. Um, that's my complaint. My complaint is not about the quarterfinal. Is that fair? Yeah, I would say having four of the top five guys, and we had our contenders podcast yep. where we both agreed Zverev was the fifth guy you have to put on that list, have four of the five in the same half of the draw. I mean, the math is pretty obvious there. That means unless Stefano Tsitsipas runs the table, there's going to be some additional challenger. That said, you look at the bottom half of the draw, and we can get into these guys obviously later in the show, but the only player who you're disappointed if it's that player in the final is Marin Cilic. Because with all (laughs) due respect to Cilic, who of course is a Grand Slam champion and will more likely than not be a Tennis Hall of Famer, has made two other Slam finals. And the very first podcast we ever recorded here at Cracked Rackets was after that Wimbledon final. That said, does anyone want to see whether it's Djokovic, Nadal, Alcaraz, or Zverev? And we can get into why I think he Mm -hmm. needs to be included, just said out loud with his level of play. No, I don't think any of us want to see that. Uh, Now, 
maybe you do want to see it if you want one of those top four guys to be uh, top half guys to become the Grand Slam champion. But I think that's the most boring permutation. Do I think Hoopy Hercots inspires the broader tennis community? the way some of the other guys in the bottom half of the draw do? No, not particularly. That said, Tennis Twitter would certainly be satisfied with a Hoopy Hercots final, and given his consistency in the big events of late, obviously made a Grand Slam semifinal last year at Wimbledon, wins a Masters event last year in Miami. It's not the craziest development to see him in that half of the draw make a run and make a Grand Slam final. That said, you look beyond it, Medvedev, Rublev, Tsitsipas, Rude, God willing, Sinner or Holger Rune. If it was an Alcaraz Sinner Grand Slam final, I, we probably have to go Periscope Live or whatever it may <laughs> be. And just I'll deck out in Italian gear and do my best LA pizza impression, and you can ride Team Alcaraz, and we'll all be happy. I'm ha- and and I, I'm not sure if I mentioned CT Pass, but by the way, CT Pass was in that slam in this slam final last year was up two sets to love. Certainly, yep. he's proven he belongs on this stage. I'm fine with anyone but Chilich in the bottom half. I'm happy we're going to see something new, even if it is CT Pass. It's still relatively new. I don't know that I'm fine. I think CT Pass needs to be the guy. Okay, uh, I I or or Sinner. I think Sinner has some intrigue with his youth and. And and his skill set, but uh, I've seen. I mean, look, even Sinner's record against top against top ten, top five players. I don't know. I don't think he's ever beaten a top five player. Actually, uh, you know, Rublev has has struggled against most of these guys. You know, I I just want a good final, and I think there. If something happens, Tsitsipas, I, I think the top, whoever comes out of the top half, I think we're going to see a line if we put it in betting terms, minus 300 or above. I Certainly minus 250. I would agree with you. They're going to be comfortable favorites. And by the way, this is the biggest stretch of Yannick Sinner's career. This is the moment. It is right there for him to have. And I know I've discussed this on previous podcasts, and I know we discussed this when we talked about the contenders. But if Yannick Sinner were to make the French Open final, the mm-hmm. pathway to do it, most likely if the seeds hold, he beats Rublev tomorrow. This is the biggest match of his career, by the way, and we can talk about that more later if you'd like. Then if the seeds hold, he plays Daniil Medvedev. Then if the seeds hold, he plays Stefano Tsitsipas. Those are three of his biggest challengers, and those are three of the guys in the generation above him who, if he wants to usurp them and surpass them in the tennis hierarchy, well, here's your chance to do it. And if he were to make the final, it will be very easy to to write the narrative and have the commentators make the case for this guy is right there with Carlos Alcaraz. Have we been sleeping on the sinner who's what twenty six and five or seven and five, whatever at mm-hmm. this point after this French Open in this point of the season? Now you're right. He doesn't have those signature top five, top ten victories in the biggest of stages. Yeah, he's flirted with some big matches. Yeah, he beat Alex Virov at Roland Garros to make the quarterfinals back in twenty twenty. We've seen him in the quarterfinals, but semifinals, finals, beating two, three top 10 players in a row. He hasn't had a run like that. You're 19, 20, I mean, 20 years old now. The run is there. Like this is when a guy, uh, and not to compare him to the Federer or the Djokovic's or the Nadal's of the world, but even the Murray's of the world and, you know, those special transcendent players, they have a run in their 20s before they're turning 21. 
the, the run is there for Sinner to be had. Yeah, I, I actually kind of thought it would happen in Rome. I had him yeah. making the final, and then he ran into Tsitsipas, and Steph has been the problem. But if you look at his next two matchups, Rublev, he's 2-0 and against Don Clay, mm-hmm. and probably of all the, I guess, Tier 1 plus Tier 2 players, Rublev being, I guess, a Tier 2 player, Rublev's probably been the guy that Sinner's had the most success against being 2-1 and overall. And then you have Medvedev on clay. You know, we know about that, right? We know that that is going to be the situation that you want to play Daniil Medvedev on in the conditions that you want to play Daniil Medvedev in if you are Yannick Sinner. Tsitsipas becomes the one where if you look at history, you're not going to be too encouraged based on what happened in Rome last week, based on what happened in Australia, Straight sets, basically, uh, Tsitsipas got Piatti fired. I think that's an underrated uh, storyline. Well, to your point there, why is tomorrow so important for Yannick Sinner? It's because the last time he had this opportunity in Australia, he got pooped on. Like, again, Tsitsipas punked him in that quarterfinal. And to your point, it led to a coaching change. And that is why there has been this cloud hanging over Yannick Sinner seemingly over despite some of his success this season is because you look at the success and actually contextualize what he's done. Again, makes the Monte Carlo semifinals. 7-6 in the third loss to Zverev. Did get a good win over Rublev there, but doesn't advance to that semifinal stage. Madrid runs into Felix. 1-2 and two loss there. Now that loss is certainly appreciated after what we saw today, but that's an Another top 10 opportunity, not over able to get over the finish line. To your point, the straight set loss to Tsitsipas in Rome, you know, Indian Wells, uh, or excuse me, not Indian Wells, but Miami, he's forced to withdraw in the quarterfinals to Surund- uh, to Surundolo. Like, he's made quarterfinals in just about every event he's played this year. Mm-hmm. He also has yet to make a single semifinal this season. He's won a title, so he doesn't get the Felix 0-11 treatment. And, like, we know what to expect from Yannick Sinner. That said, there's one step left for him to take. He has ample opportunities to take that step here, and we're completely out of order. My plan was to do the bottom half of the draw after we reviewed today. But now, since we're in this loop, give me your favorite right now. Bottom half of the draw. Eye test, numbers, however you want to factor it in. Has Medvedev surpassed Tsitsipas, or is Tsitsipas still the clear-cut favorite in your mind? Tsitsipas still my favorite. Um, and and by the way, I just want to say, Sinner uh, against top five players, 0-12. Just want to give throw the okay. number out there, because I did mention that I didn't think he's ever beaten a top five opponent, and that is the case. So... Uh, Medvedev has definitely surprised me and he looks good. I still think when, if he runs up against someone with elite athleticism, speed, court coverage on the clay, I think that's that's where he runs into problems on this surface. Uh, whereas, you know, Chilich, I don't think that's going to be a problem. Uh, Ketsmanovich, Can look, I push I mean, back? I don't mean to interrupt you because I've done ahead. a lot of monologuing here t- through today's show. And to your point, I appreciate that number. Sinner 27 and 6 this season. The quietest 27 and 6 yeah. it continues to be, but just a ridiculous, you know, he's winning 82% of his matches, career high hold percentage. The yep. break percentage has held as a top 15 number. This is the Yannick Sinner we're getting throughout the course of his career. But to your point on Medvedev, I don't think it's the elite athleticism. I just don't think he's played a guy with a weapon yet. 
you look at the three wins, Bagnus, Laszlo Jir, who moves extraordinarily well on the clay, as does Miramir Kesmanovic. Neither of them, though, an overwhelming weapon. I don't think Medvedev's been stretched yet. And I am curious because if Chilich will do nothing else, he's going to serve plus one you. And if he executes, he'll keep the match close. Now, can he keep it up for two and a half plus hours? I don't know. But do you think Medvedev's actually been t- like stretched physically yet? Because I don't think his lack of elite movement on clay has been exposed. Yeah, I mean, I just I thought he moved pretty well against Ketsmanovich, but I, I guess agree. the the larger point is, I feel like he can sometimes eat weapons for breakfast, and <laughs> sure. it's like it's the it's the baseline power, honestly. And I know the movement's been an issue as well, but it's really. It's the lack of pace generation on the clay that I think will get him into trouble. Not necessarily the like, I mean, Chilich played him great at Wimbledon, right? Five sets there. And it was a lot of slice serves out wide, taking advantage of Medvedev's deeper turn position, serve plus one. I think that's going to be harder on the clay for for Chilich to do because the serve just shouldn't be as effective. See, I... I understand the point, and I I see the matchup, and I do agree with you. Over time, I don't think Chilich will be able to sustain that aggression as easily as he was at Wimbledon. On the flip side, and today, and I know I'm blending in here, and we'll look at that match specifically in a moment, but watching Felix versus Rafa, when Rafa was landing the forehand down the line, that's when he was winning the match, when he was able to hit behind Felix. And in particular, you go to the 3-4 game. How does he build his love 30 lead? Two forehands behind Felix that he's able to approach on. Felix wasn't able to change direction. I don't think Medvedev's had anyone who can do that to him thus far in this tournament. And where I think Chilich's plus one success comes in is Chilich is going to take the open space. And then Chilich is either going to hit behind you or he's going to be at the net and hitting a first volley and taking time away. And I just don't think we've seen Medvedev's ability to change direction stressed yet at all. And I know I'm repeating myself here, but I do think Chilich will be able to do that. And I think it's a four-set win for Medvedev because, of course, Medvedev can still serve well, move Chilich around, absorb some first blows. And to your point, I thought Medvedev moved well against Kasmanovic. Did I think it was elite movement? No, I think I think we have three elite— Well, Tsitsipas is a tough argument. Rude's a tough argument, too, that they belong in that conversation. But watching Alcaraz move against Karen Hatchinov, that's elite movement on clay. And with all due respect, I don't think Rafa's there anymore. I think Alcaraz is on a tier of his own. And like, as such, Medvedev's on that tier on a hard court. He's not on the clay courts. And I just want to see that tested. Yeah, that that's fair. Well, Tsitsipas can certainly do both, right? It, because precisely. he's got... Yeah, I mean, he has to serve plus one. Sinner doesn't... You know, his serve probably isn't going to do much okay. in that matchup. But uh, yes, you know, with the baseline power, certainly. And so with that in mind, make the case for Tsitsipas, who obviously has been tested here in this first week. And again, I do want to look big picture as we haven't had the chance to do that much at Cracked Rackets uh, over the past couple of days. You look for Tsitsipas, obviously the two sets to love down, survival against Musetti, four set win over Kolar. Perhaps the most encouraging thing, he plays the grinder in Mikhail Immer. It was target practice, and you look for mm-hmm. Tsitsipas 2-2-1. Two, two, and one. That was his best performance of the tournament, and he served better. The heaviness of his forehand, his ability to change direction, I think he might be an elite mover on the clay. 
I think so. He, I mean, so is he the clear-cut favorite? Is he still tier one in your mind, or has he dropped down? He is. I mean, people were freaking out a little bit after the Kolar yep. match, and, and I get it. It's not a good look to to play that tight a match, especially after round one, where, where you know you spent a long time on the court. Uh, you, you you got off to a bad start in in that match and dropped the the first two sets, um, won the last three easily. But you know that was a round two match where it's like okay, let's let's get on the court and get it off get off it quickly. He didn't do that, so he definitely needed to do that against Emer, or else I think there would have been some real alarm bells. Um, I, I was kind of holding out because that matchup, Tsitsipas Emer. I mean, Emer's just been yeah. smoked every single time. So uh, Tsitsipas did it again, and he got off the court quickly. And uh, I'm I'm concerned about the return, even on clay. I know that's not supposed to. It's not supposed to be like that. Uh, but Musetti and Kolar. Do not have big serves, and Tsitsipas's return made their serves look big, and and that was concerning to see. And now Emer's serve is even is even slower, and it was not a problem. But that is kind of my only question: is is he going to be able to to return well, um, or well enough against, you know, actually Rune's serve is fine, but it's it's average. Uh, I, we can get to this, but I think he might see Hubert Hercotch and even Casper serves pretty well. So then you'll get kind of the answer to that question. CTPAS but yeah, he's 20, my favorite. Tsitsipas, 23.8% break percentage for the year. That number jumps to 29.4% on the clay courts. And, you know, that also takes him from outside the top 25 to inside the top 15 as a returner. And I think all of us see that with his backhand when you watch him play. He's going to cheat over on the outside, try to find inside-out, inside-out, inside-in forehand combinations. His ability, though, when you challenge the open space to track down that on-the-run forehand and, you know, hit that ball heavy and elevated down the line to just buy himself time and take away your targets— you can feel the strength of his quads when he hits that shot, just watching him play through the screen. And it is a remarkable display of athleticism. And I agree with you. It's just Immer didn't have any weapons to hurt him with. And if you don't have weapons to hurt Tsitsipas with, he has hit another level as an attacker. And again, watching Felix play today, he's just those two guys. They're some of those guys where when the serve and forehand are landing, it's on their terms. And you're going to lose. Unless yep. you find a way of disrupting the rhythm, you're going to lose. And has Tsitsipas hit that plane consistently enough in the first week to make him the prohibitive favorite compared to the level we've seen from everyone else? <sighs> I mean, we sniffed around this. Is Yannick Sinner playing well? Like, I know it keeps coming back to him, but when I look at this bottom half of the draw and you look for Sinner, pretty ideal for Tangelo, Carbeas Bania, Mackie McDonald, Bjorn for Tangelo, shout out 2011 Junior French Open title, knocks out Dominic Team. I mean, he's good on the clay, but doesn't have the weapons to hurt Sinner consistently. And, you know, he was up three love in that first set against Carbeas Bania, drops that first set, ultimately takes the next three. It was nice to see him pushed physically, bounce back the way he did against Mackie. He hasn't played his best match yet this tournament. He's still not, you know, again, he's not serving particularly well. Seems a little bit hesitant, you know, moving forward right now after, you know, when he opens up position for himself with the first strike. I mean, Rublev's a litmus test. Like, this is what I keep coming back to because 
I don't think Rublev's playing particularly well either, and I think both guys go about attacking opponents in very similar ways. I think this is the match of the day. Like, as good as Kaspar Ruud Hercats is, as good as Holgaruna Tsitsipas is, and I want to get to that match in a second because welcome to the Holgaruna bandwagon, rest of the world. This match is the match to me where if Sinner wins it comfortably, now I think there's a threat to Tsitsipas. If he doesn't, no, like I agree with you. Tsitsipas should should not, maybe he'll get pushed, maybe four, maybe five, but he should get to the finals. Yeah. Um, maybe I'm just rooting for it so inherently because I think it's the best storyline. But again, like, is Yannick right. Sinner, have you seen enough from him? In no, this no, play but, but I can't tell. I cannot tell from those opponents that, that he's faced. Yeah, you know, true. so well, when you say Rublev is the litmus test, I mean, I, I just, I agree with that. And, I, I think Sinner has a couple of advantages that he might be able to lean on. I mean, I like him backhand to backhand in that matchup. Uh, I think that he has a great ability to attack Rublev's second serve with the weight of shot that he brings from uh, deep in the court. He can do it on his forehand and his backhand, which is important uh, against Rublev, and he's done that very well. He did it well in Monte Carlo. And then also, he's just the more level-headed player mentally and... I mean, I, I don't know, you know, sometimes it feels like Rublev can can be on edge and uh, testy and he can still be playing well. But something about the best of five format, I just don't like the the hyper pressure that he's putting himself under point in and point out. I think it wears him down and I think it, it creates inconsistencies in his game. Meanwhile, I, I think Sinner, from a mental standpoint, has always been beyond his years. And I think that development has continued uh, to go really, really well. And I, I never doubt Sinner's ability uh, to focus in a match and, and give his best mentally. So I can't help it. Let's do the deep dive. You tell me, bigger match, this fourth round against Rublev or, or prior match in Yannick Sinner's career? Quarterfinal Australian Open Tsitsipas. I think this matches that. I think those are probably the two right now. And this is only bigger because it's redemption from that. Yeah, this match is bigger. Now, Sinner uh, was the favorite in in Australia, because though. Because Tsitsipas was playing poorly, and Sinner didn't lose an ATP Cup match, and he hadn't lost a yes. set going into that. Correct. So, um, look, I mean, here's the thing, though. He's got a better chance to win this match. Like I that. Uh, I mean, yes, the form was was suggesting what that what that betting line ended up being, but on a surface that quick... It's about the bang, bang, serve plus one kind of tennis. Tsitsipas is going to be better than Sinner in that area. This, you know, now here at Roland Garros, I mean, you mentioned 2020 quarterfinal. Last year, fourth round. This is clearly his best slam. So it's time. It's time to get after it and and pick up another signature win like he did in 2020 against Zverev, uh, who was apparently sick, although Zverev, Seems to come up with a lot of reasons every time he loses. Yeah. Uh, this is big. Yeah. I think this is bigger. No, I, I agree with you there. I think Zverev round of 16 last year at the U.S. Open, no, because it was the five-set match with Sinner in the round before. And again, another year of him building clout, 27-6 and six overall this season. Rafa, 2011 round of 16, no. Like If he had won it, sure, but he was not the favorite at all heading into this one quarterfinal against Roland Gar- at Roland Garros 2020 against Rafa, same deal. You look at some of the Masters matches, 
I mean, again, so many quarterfinals, finals appearances for him already. You know, he's 26 and 15 in his career at the Masters, which, again, with context being key, uh, at 20 years old, that's pretty damn impressive. That's pretty crazy. I mean, with with how good those draws are, there's that's, no easy matches. He's made the quarterfinals or further at, let's see, three consec- four consecutive Masters, which, oh, no, round of 16 in Madrid, excuse me, but... I mean, again, like, does any Mont? You, you look at it, maybe the Miami final because it was against Hubie Hercott. So that's the only one when I look at these matches. There's, you know, quarterfinals in Miami. Uh, excuse me, in Monte Carlo against that was Fiorev. bigger. That that might have been bigger. The Miami final. That's the only one I could think of. Yeah, yeah. That that was probably that's probably still the or, biggest match. What about, v- what about end of season last year when he was in the race for the ATP finals and he loses that first round match in Stockholm to Murray? Eh, like, no. honest to God, but from a no. pressure standpoint? Everybody thought he was going to get in. I think I did. Did you? Uh, no, I thought he was going to crush Murray. I mean, yeah. but again, it's the fact that he went first round loss Paris to Alcaraz still, but first round loss Stockholm as well. And it was like, is he really going to not get in? I know. I, I mean, look, I, I know at that time of year, it's all about getting into that top eight, but yeah. I can't. It's it's in it's the not fall. the same. Yeah, it's, it's a fall match. It's still a fall match. Yeah, fair. All right. With that in mind, I promise no yeah. more Yannick Sinner. But you talk about the physicality that's required. And by the way, because we didn't talk about it in the mini break, Rublev, what was it? Hitting a ball or the racket or whatever happened. He Again, hit the ball. He hit the ball and it almost hit someone. Uh, yeah. Okay, he, so. And I'm not trying to write it off there. It's just indicative of the growing trend, right? Like, I don't think I have nothing new to add on to the subject. I I suppose as it pertains to Rublev in particular, I don't think anyone would question his character. I think Andre Rublev is pretty well regarded. And there was the anecdote going around of how much time he spent after the match signing autographs, which seems like a little thing, but it's quite the commitment. You're drained. You want to get off court. You want to go recover. He spends the time to do that and pretty consistent about that i mean do you have any particular reaction to this development yeah uh, i think it's not it's not just this i think rublev it shouldn't be well look i'm not even going to say that that it won't that it's an easy thing but uh i think he probably needs to get someone to help him with how he's channeling his anger and um he just needs to find habits on the court that are going to be less destructive. He can't stop cutting up his knuckles. He can't stop putting himself in harm's way. Uh, you know, that, that, what he did with the, with the ball. I mean, you can get defaulted there. You can hurt someone. He was in close quarters. He's hitting the ball kind of recklessly against his chair. So I don't think it's a matter of, well, don't get angry, Andre, like figure out how to not get angry. It's, when you get angry, let's try to build certain habits of how you get that out. And I know nothing about this. I am not an expert, uh, but I know that there are people out there who are. And the only thing that seems clear to me is that Andre should should think about uh, enlisting someone to help him out. I would say foundationally, he's a perfectionist. You can tell it gets frustrated at the slightest of errors, holds himself to the highest of standards, which you have to do as an athlete if you want to succeed at that level. You talked about the physicality it requires, the intensity it requires to maintain that physicality is why none of us do it professionally, because we're not capable of finding that level of performance. To your point, when the frustrations become uh, detrimentative, 
that's not how you say that word. <laughs> Detrimental, sorry. Again, brain broken, too much time in champagne, not enough in Ann Arbor, go blue. When it becomes detrimental, absolutely. It, it's something he needs to improve upon because, again, the focus is going to have to be immense if he wants to knock off Yannick Sinner tomorrow. If he just wants to advance and to continue to advance, look, if he gets through Sinner, then perhaps he has Medvedev. And we know that is not a matchup he's had a lot of success in over the past couple of years. On clay, it would be interesting to watch yep. those two play. But again, looking more broadly in this section, you talked about the physicality. Watching some of these players play, Felix so clearly has it. We're just to have to sustain and be able to maintain yourself against the heaviness of his ball over and over again over the course of three and a half hours. It just feels like there's a, maybe five guys in the world who are capable of doing that. I think Hubi Hercots is A, one of those guys. I also think Holger Rune could have, and I mean, and I know he's got his cramping issues now, but the physicality he plays with, I think he can become one of those guys. And let's start with Hubi, who just is so consistent at the big events. You look at what Hubi Hercots has done this season overall 23 and 9, again, one of those quiet successes, semifinals in Dubai, semifinals in Miami, quarterfinals Monte Carlo, quarterfinals Madrid. Yeah, he loses first round Rome, 6 and 6 to David Goffin. Not a bad loss. He has yet to drop a set in this tournament, including a straight set victory over the aforementioned David Goffin. So gets a little bit of revenge himself. You look right now at the ATP stats leaderboard, hold percentage leaders, players at 90% or above. John Isner won. Riley Opelka, who's come back down to earth, still over 90% though at two. Hubi Hercats is at three. And I think foundationally that's where it starts. He wins three points on serve. He's six foot six. Can fiz- you know, again, the fluidity, size, length, skill set combination. He is your modern player. He can do everything. I just think three out of five sets, that's got, you know, that guy is just a nightmare to go up against. And I do wonder, in terms of floors, like, does Hubi Hercats, is his floor now in these three out of five set matches top 10 player just because of, again, how difficult it is to sustain your level against him? Yeah, well, the, I think the serve creates a super high floor, just like we sure. saw with Berrettini. And the, and the consistency that he had in majors last year. I, I really see so many parallels between what what Matteo did last year when That's he was healthy. That's interesting. I like that. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, it, it took Novak Djokovic to return his serve. Uh, Djokovic returned his serve, and then he would lose. Everybody else did not return his serve, and he would win. And I, I don't think I don't think it's all that complicated with Hercots throughout this clay court season. His serve... I mean, there's more to his game, but he has served so well. Clay, be damned! It has been, it has been a problem for for almost everybody. And man, I think it's going to be a problem for Rude. And uh, I think I think Kurkach is going to win. I haven't seen enough out of Rude's return. I haven't seen enough out of Rude's baseline consistency. Uh, I know that Kurkach is going to. You know, him and Craig Boynton are going to formulate a game plan that entails approaching the Casper Ruud backhand, which I think he struggles to pass on sometimes. Uh, I think that there is plenty there for Hercotch to to pull off what is on paper that upset. Do you consider Hoopy Hercotch a good returner? No. Do you are you going to give me a stat a, that's going to. Uh, do you consider him a bad returner? 
No. So, I you know what I do? I consider him a bad. I consider him pretty bad from uh, from neutral and baseline rallies. So I think I test wise, he's the best bad returner we have on tour. And the numbers would indicate he's a bad returner. You look at his number this season, Hoopy Hercot's breaking serve 20.8% of the time, the average of top 50 players, 24.3. That said, foundationally, and I know I've said this before, his forehand gets a little big and he gets a little slice happy and block return happy on both the wings. But he has a, you know, again, his double success, a testament to this fact, he is a good returner. I think his backhand return in particular, his ability to take that ball early on the rise, jump on it. I mean, we saw the success he had at Wimbledon last season behind that play. Now, I think he can get impatient, but I just think that is the lowest hanging fruit. Like, he should be a guy hanging out in the 25% range the way he was as he ascended his way up the Challenger Tour. And that is why I think in the biggest moments, in the biggest matches, on the biggest stages where he's not playing around, where he is just foundationally saying, I am getting this return back deep, getting this point to neutral. I just, like, you look for So, again, Hoopy Hercots at... Overall, for his career, in terms of his break percentage in ATP level matches, 19.5. Now, he's 20.8 this season. You look for him at the Grand Slams both this year and last season, that break percentage up to 22.1. You look for him at Masters events, again, this season, last season, that break percentage also in that 22.5% range. He's just a better returner in big stages than he is at the 250s and at the 500s. And I do think that it, like, I think that just, again, half the battle is starting the point off. That's where his size comes into plays. I don't think it's the return, though. Okay, keep going. I I think, I think, I think he gets stuck behind the baseline and he's not that good uh, when he's not, when he's stuck behind the baseline. I think he defends well, but there's just no, there's no offense off the ground because he doesn't have a modern forehand. And I know you like to say as a modern game, but his forehand is stuck in the 90s. See, I think he's Bernard Tomic's spiritual brother, where it's just like, I can do all the on court. Like, I can do a little bit of everything. And that's where I actually think he's his worst enemy, is because what is plan A for Hoopy Hercots? Where this, I mean, we know what plan A is. Hit the big serve, come in behind it, use his hands and feel at the net to be aggressive, impose his will. But what's his plan in neutral? Like, you're right. For going from defense or going from neutral to offense is not something he excels at because I think he can do it in a bunch of different ways, and it's just about finding the most effective way to do it. Like again, I I don't see a foundational. Look, you're, you're, flaw. you're nicer. I do. Like you're nicer than me about his forehand. I think his forehand so that's holds him back. Okay. I think it absolutely kills him. Yeah. I I I think it really. I think it's that much of a weakness. Tiafa light. I mean, Tiafa light. Is that what you're saying? Like it is the glitch. Like that's what you attack with the heavy spin. So if he's playing rude. Uh, he's playing. I don't know. Casper rude tomorrow. Who hits one of the heaviest forehands on tour? Is rude? Is rude not attack? You know, rude loves to go inside out, inside out, inside in. Is that not the play for rude? Is the it, is the rude play be. just wear down that forehand cross court? Yeah. Like go inside in as soon as you can because when you're going inside out you're going to give her what he wants, which is to change direction on his backhand down the line yeah. uh, into the open court. So yeah, if I'm, if I'm coaching rude, I'm saying, don't, 
go inside out three times in a row. Like you have to go inside in here. So can um, I say the stupid counter is I kind of love who he's on the run forehand though, because I think he's thinking less. And I think because he's on the run, he has more time for the backswing. And that's why I kind of think, so this gets into the quarterfinal preview. Are you taking Hercots over Rude tomorrow? Yeah. Yeah. And I did before the tournament. Yeah. So make the case. The the case is that Root is missing too much, uh, too many forehands, <laughs> first of all. Okay. Um, and just something has looked off with him this entire clay season. Uh, just a little bit. Uh, you know, I know how well he can play, and I just feel like consistently he hasn't quite been there. But from a matchup perspective, uh, I think Hercotch is going, again, to get a lot of purchase from his serve because Rude faces big servers and and it's a problem. You know, like if you look at the Kyrgios match in Indian Wells, for example, how ugly that got in terms of Rude trying to return that serve. Hercotch is on that level, on that elite level, and I don't think the clay is going to matter. I think he's going to serve his way through the match uh, more than not. And then, as I mentioned, uh, serve and volley to the Rude backhand is an amazing play that I think Hercotch can use. And just in general, trying to come in on that rude backhand, which is a shot that he likes to put a lot of air under. And as a result, I think he struggles to pass on it sometimes. All those things combined, lots of kind of, I think, mental wear on rude. He played Geneva uh, last week. I I got to be critical of that, that decision. It didn't work last year. I don't get it. Uh, French Open power rankings that I do, Top 10 plus four. None of my top 14 contenders played last week. Now, Medved- Medvedev should have been in there and I botched, but none <laughs> of those players played last week. Why is Kasparu the only guy who's playing Geneva? Well, this is why I'm happy you went daily because now you understand why those unforced errors come up. It's just inevitable when you're making daily podcast content. <laughs> I think that's fair, uh, absolutely, and particularly given how worn down he's looked since Miami, just in general, to put mm-hmm. the extra matches on his legs. And again, you know Hoopy's going to find ways to win free points. Every time Kasparud hits a backhand slice, which he likes to do, Hoopy will jump on that ball, take it as an opportunity to move forward. And to your point, that inside-out ba- inside forehand for Rude, a little bit less effective against a guy with the length and the ability to change directions on that wing like Hercots has. At the same time, given his clay court success last year at the 250s, given his lack of quarterfinal, semifinal appearances at the majors— there should be a ton of pressure on Cat. Like we probably that opening segment shouldn't have been about Sinner and his pathway here, but I think big picture we think he can play a bigger role. But for Casper Rude, it's a match you got to win, and I know he's coming off of a tough victory in his last round, but he had to beat Sinego. Yeah, I think. That, I think. It, go ahead. That one. Well, okay, because and I tweeted about this. There was that third round hump. Yeah. That he lost a team and he lost to Federer and then he lost to uh, Davidovich Fikina. The Senego, I mean, I thought that was massive pressure. Mm-hmm. No, still I, pressure though. I agree with you completely. Like I would say, if Sinners, well, pressure rankings. Let's do it quickly. Power rankings, and then we can move on to the top half. But as you're looking at tomorrow's matchups, Chilich Medvedev. I don't think there's a lot of pressure on either guy, just particularly yeah. for Medvedev, given his injury status coming into the tournament. Now he should win this match, and it's funny. Tennis Abstract has it 52-48 uh, Medvedev favored, so they expect it to be closer. 
I expect it to be closer. I still think Medvedev wins in four. And I don't think there's a lot of pressure either way. Like, if he loses, oh well. Yeah, I tend to lean Medvedev in three, but but I could also see it four. Sinner Rublev? Are we not talking enough about the pressure on Rublev there? I mean, that's a healthy amount. Yeah, no, le- legit pressure. But the thing is about Rublev is I don't know that the circumstances need to be what they are for him to feel pressure. Like, I think he puts pressure on himself in the second round in Rotterdam. Yeah. So, uh, you know, in a way, it's like, what's the difference? It, yeah, Tournament and Rotterdam as opposed to Rotterdam. But I don't know if – I think you might be right. I think it actually is Rotterdam. Anyways, I'm going to change the game midway through. Who is it a must win for? I think it is a must win for Rublev. I think if he continues to come short, again, in these stages when he runs up against a Medvedev or a Zverev or you know, a Berrettini, it just feels like they're always getting the better of him in these He's stages. been let off the hook for best of five results also. I mean it's been a long time yeah. since he's gone deep in a major. So uh, that's going to start to build. Yeah, so I think it's a must-win for him. Holgeruna has no pressure. It's been a win for him just to get to this per- point of the draw. Any reaction to him? I mean, I think we knew this about him coming in. God, speaking of on-the-slide forehands on the stretch to buy yourself time and just take away angles and opportunities to be attacked, I think I like his on-the-stretch forehand. Like, I don't know if it's quite Novak or Pass level yet. I think it can get there. Yeah, man is very good. Um, (laughs) (laughs) the backhand's nice the backhand is everything's nice I think that's the thing about his game it's going to be another case uh, where the the athleticism and the power uh, doesn't quite jump out like it does with Alcaraz but I think in a similar respect people are going to look at him and be like where's the weakness I'm I'm struggling Uh, the serve maybe but uh, we seem to say that about every young player are we already branding him the poor man's Alcaraz? Because I kind of like that. I don't hate it. I don't hate it. You're not wrong. Like, to your point, it's what's the weakness? And you're like, oh, the forehand, the backswing's a little big. I, like I love the forehand. Uh, it's a little big. No, no. I think the take back is a nice, high, modern take back. I've got no issue with it. Are you, about to me tell me, are, are you about to tell me his best surface is also going to be at Wimbledon? And grass <laughs> no, as well? no, 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 no. Okay. Best surface is clay. Yeah, and I mean, again, slides around so fluidly. I agree. The floor for Holgerun, and he's already a top 50 player, but that's the floor for him moving forward. I don't think he's going to drop out of it for quite a bit of time. I think it's must win for Casper. Is it must, and you know, again, is it must win for Hoobie? Probably not. No, no. I, I, Hoobie's thinking, okay, well, Clay's going to be a bonus, and then grass is when the pressure comes. Yeah. And Although so- there's no, you know, it's funny. I mean, getting rid of the points at Wimbledon, it's going to be a completely different mindset. Very, very true. That said, ah, you know what? Let's not do that now. We cannot talk keep... about that right now. Yeah, I can keep you for three hours if you want. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not doing anything. I mean, again, I'm back in Indianapolis, and my secretary's not even home. I'm home yeah. alone right now. Literally nothing to do. This is me at my most dangerous. Um, And let me tell you, I napped today. Despite the 13 hours of sleep I got last night, I still snuck in a nap. Prime form. I'm up to 6'2", 2'16 now. Um, all right, let's move over to the top half of the draw. I mean, let's talk Rafa, FAA. What a match. Five-set victory in the end for Rafa. Survives 6-3 in the fifth set. Ultimately breaks 4-5-3. Able to hold from there. I mentioned it earlier. 
love to get to love 30 Rafa a couple of a passing uh, a couple of approach forehands behind Felix that was the shot in my opinion that defined this match when Rafa was landing the forehand behind Felix hitting it down the line successfully he was finding ways to succeed he was moving forward being aggressive it's not talked about enough Gil how good Rafa's become as a volleyer and I just think when you look for Rafa moving forward the efficiency it's there. By the way, I had this whole preparation of notes for what I was going to talk about with Rafa here about how he it looks a step slower, how that burst on the clay, the strength of his slide just isn't quite what it was. And by the way, it turns 36 this year. It shouldn't be what it was 10, 15 years ago, even five years ago. That said, what does he do in order to break? Comes up with two ridiculous on-the-run passing shots, one of them off of a drop shot, the other one on-the-run forehand behind, you know, down the line by Felix. He found the athleticism he needed in the biggest moments. He was efficient with the first serve, even if he didn't serve his best. Your thoughts on Rafa's performance? I mean, again, is this the ceiling he needs to show to win this tournament? Yeah, I'm just glad you're talking about the 4-3 game in the fifth set because – that game was silly. It was I mean, so Felix, good. Felix makes every first serve. <laughs> he makes zero errors. He does not get passive. He hits the approach shots that are there for him. He he hits a couple of good, you know, he hits a good forehand angle on um on on one of the points that he ends up getting punished for with Nadal's like short goading uh backhand slice that forced him to net, then he got passed. I mean, I'm just looking point by point by point, and then Felix won two of them, serve plus one and a service winner. His love 30 inside out serve plus one forehand was drop was your jaw. So like, good. Is this kid really going to hit this now? Yeah. I mean, Felix played a phenomenal game. He gets broken. I mean, that is that is Nadal at Roland Garros stuff. I mean, and that's just it. You know, you, you look at, you just look at a perfect return game and, and there it is. And it's just like, wow, um, that won the match for, for Nadal. And there's nothing Felix could have done. Here's the problem, though. He needs to duplicate that level consistently, I think, against Novak, oh. against Carlos. Uh, because I think when you look for Fe- – and look, the pressure Felix applied to Rafa in this match, again, exceptional. You look at the stats for Felix in this match across the board. I mean, again, won 64% of his first serve points. Hits 50 winners against 54 unforced errors. You know how freaking hard it is to go even close to net zero in winners to unforced error ratio against Rafa on clay? Felix, 50 to 54. And again, you look at the ra- uh, the shot breakdown by rally analysis in terms of the zero to four shot rallies. Felix plus nine in the zero to four shot categories against Rafa on clay. Rafa has made a living off of his plus one forehand on the clay. Felix out plus one him in this match. To your point, Felix did everything right. Rafa ultimately escapes in five sets. My question is, again, is that enough? Like I do think looking at the board, and we said this coming into the tournament, I still think Rafa's your third favorite. I know it's Rafa at Roland Garros, 16th quarter final. You drop your jaw at the levels of success. No one's arguing that he's not the best clay court player in tennis history. I'm arguing that in 2022, I mean, again, Felix, like it's hard to say in the same breath, Felix played like top five player. Rafa beat him, but Rafa's not the number one candidate to win the French Open. 
and this comes down to, I guess, the broader question of who's looked best. I do think Carlos and Novak have looked better. I mean, you could be concerned about the dips in that mm-hmm. match where, I mean, it, you mentioned the, the zero through four, but uh, if you looked at the five plus, it was massive edge to, to Rafa because what was happening here is Felix still is not an elite winner of neutral rallies still isn't that right. So uh, the, in the instances that Felix broke serve, and I can't say enough about how difficult and how good Felix was on serve, but Felix on return, he required Nadal generosity and Nadal was generous with the mistakes and the errors at the very beginning of the match especially on the backhand. It was weird how much he was missing his backhand. And the same thing happened in the fourth set when it was really looking like Rafa and four. It was looking like the match was going to be played in three starts, uh, three parts. Well, bad, t- n- Sorry, go ahead. Bad Nadal in the beginning. Felix serve gets hot um, to close out the first set, beginning of the second set. Felix serve cools down. Nadal rolls. It was looking like that was the match. And then Nadal had a blip or a dip, or whatever you want to call it. And in the fourth set, he spotted Felix a lead. Now he's down a break. And then, you know, we talk about FAA's serve plus one. To Felix's credit, he gave Nadal no chance to get back into that set. Yeah, that was Felix's calling card throughout the match. And you're absolutely right. I think that ceiling that we've seen from Felix before, and I've said it on this podcast numerous times, he's one of my six. Him, you know, Medvedev's already won it. Zverev, Tsitsipas, Felix, Sinner, Alcaraz. I think they all leave this decade with a grand slam. To be plus nine against Rafa, a testament to how exceptional Felix was in executing that play. To your point, Rafa was plus 20 in the five to eight shot rallies, plus six in the nine plus shot rallies. Felix's ability to absorb on the backhand wing has gotten better. And I think the misnomer of Felix as a bad clay court player has been washed away by the quarterfinal results in this match he played here against Rafa on clay, the third guy to ever push Rafa to a fifth set in Roland Garros, or fourth guy, whatever it is. Um, Exceptional from Felix. To your point, the opportunities were there for Rafa in this match, and that's why my level of concern is high, because you're right, the backhand errors were puzzling and it just looked like he couldn't handle the pace of the Felix forehand in that first set and again credit to Felix for continuing to pressure Rafa from start to finish he found his range in sets two and three set four the inside out forehand was just gone like it just was not landing he missed that ball on the net tape probably seven times during the course of the set and I just look at Djokovic who systematically and methodically eliminated Diego Schwartzman today. And there's a wise man at Gil Gross on Twitter who tweeted, Novak did that to the guy with the most clay court wins on the season. That was a pretty good point from that guy. I mean, again, Novak routined him and it was a one, three and three victory. And I believe Novak was down three love in that second set, rips off seven straight games and just hit that cruise control mode that Novak can hit where physically I was watching him closely because, again, where did Rafa have the majority of his success today? was hitting behind Felix and, you know, forcing him to try to change directions. Novak changed directions pretty damn well against Diego Schwartzman, and I know the Rafa ball from the baseline has more bite than Diego's, but I just think Novak is closer to his peak performance right now than Rafa is, and again, 
in a matchup like this, we know the history. We know how thin the margins are. Djokovic played his best match of the season, one of the best matches of his career last year, to beat Rafa. I don't think we've seen that Rafa, though, in this event. And I think if we do see it, can he sustain it for the three-plus hours he's going to need to against Djokovic? Again, to doubt Rafa at the French Open is foolish, and I said I'm never going to not pick him to win the tournament until he loses two years in a row. Of course, I violated that immediately at the start (laughs) of the tournament by picking Novak. I still feel pretty good about that pick. I just think with how good Novak looked today, and again, I'm asking you to put on your three hat, I think it's hard to argue he's not the favorite, like, going into this match unless you're just stuck on the Rafa pedigree. That's the only argument for Rafa is the pedigree. Pretty much. Um, yeah. And then, you know, some some of the systematic and, you know, advantages that Nadal has traditionally had. And by the way, the pedigree is a pretty damn strong argument. Yeah, it's because it. I don't know, in 2020, I think we had a similar thing. Uh, <laughs> but I do think Nadal was still the favorite. Uh, the number that I saw this open at was minus 220 or something for Djokovic, which wow. Uh, yeah, I mean that I don't agree with that number, to be honest. Uh, well, that just like- means that everyone was jumping on him because everyone sees what we see, which is Novak's yet to drop a set. Rafa just went five. Like, yeah, it was did- Rafa going five, I yeah. think. And then and then Djokovic again, just like making Schwartzman look like a qualifier. I mean, <laughs> that's a joke. Like it was literally uh, like because I watched that third set in its entirety, and Djokovic did not play well. The first, he Djokovic did up, you know, was trying to mix in the drop shots, going big with the forehand, throwing in some plus one errors, and then it was three all. And Novak, you could tell in his eyes, he said, "You know what? I'm done with this match. Like I wanted to be <laughs> on court for two hours today. I wanted to sweat enough so that when I go back and eat the gluten free pasta, I'm going to feel good about myself, and I can do my yoga, you know." voodoo up and go to bed and that's what he did like he hit that gear and to your point earlier Rafa hit that gear at three four at four three in that fifth set but he couldn't find it sooner he couldn't find it in the fourth to put the match away and that was that like that enough in the margins of this thin between these two guys that's why he's minus 220 yeah I don't think I'm that like I don't know I don't know that the FAA match changed much for me, though. Okay. Right. Like, like I, I don't look at that performance and say that that's a little bit concerning for Nadal because I, I thought Nadal played three great sets, and then two, you know, meh sets. Yeah. And and I totally understand that that Djokovic hasn't really even had that level of inconsistency. I mean, it has just been start to finish. I mean, there was maybe a, a tough moment in the third set against Molchan, and that's it. Yeah. Um, but. So, so I get that, but to me, I have larger questions that kind of emerged last year about, um, is, does Nadal, I, I guess what I'm curious about, can Djokovic go toe to toe forehand wise with Nadal now on clay? Because I thought through the prime of their careers, the answer was no. And that just didn't matter much on the other surfaces. I thought Djokovic had enough with the serve and the return and the backhand. Like there was enough there that he didn't need the the better forehand in order to beat Rafael Nadal. On clay, I thought he needed that. You know, serve return is going to be neutralized. The backhand is just not going to be as much of a factor because of the, the slower kind of surface. You need that big, heavy, penetrating weapon 
Nadal had it. Djokovic didn't advantage Rafa. Um, plus you have that, that plus one factor with the lefty serve. I mean, I, I look at the match in 2021, Djokovic's forehand is just as good as Nadal's. Now I look at Novak's forehand throughout the clay court season in 2022 in Rome. It's humongous. It's absolutely humongous. So I'm starting to question if that advantage really exists for Nadal anymore, the movement thing, you know, Djokovic is just, he is moving younger than Nadal. We <laughs> yeah. all see that. And by the and, way, that's the right adjective. Is It's like, because you go back to that 2011 season where the clay court matches they played were just laughable. Yeah. Who's closer to that right now? The answer is Novak. Novak. Yeah. And For so sure. I agree with you there. I could not have, you know, have stated that better myself. You watch Novak hit the forehand now and go watch him go after his plus one opportunities. There were a couple of early errors in that third set against Schwartzman, but that was just to find his range. There's just sting on it now. He goes after that ball. The racket speed is now there. And you're right. Like, so there's this NC State women's player named Nell Miller, who is one half of the Division I Women's Doubles Champion. Shout out NC State, Jada Daniel, first championship in program history. She goes out of her way to hit inside out backhands from the do side of the court. And it's <laughs> actually one of the most incredible displays of athleticism. Like, she'll run around the ball and hit a jumping inside and backhand. And you're just like, no one else does this. There were times when you thought to yourself, maybe that's what Novak should be doing with that forehand. Not any longer. Like, the plus one forehand is a weapon. Absolutely. And I think he's hitting it well enough to get Rafa stretched. Because what did Felix do to have his success today? Got Rafa stretched. And attacked with the plus one forehand and you another great Gil Gross tweet is what does Felix do now better than he used to do is actually hit an approach shot as opposed to trying to hit a winner well Novak Djokovic is all about the percentages he is going to hit that deep penetrating approach shot and trust his hands at the net to put the ball away yeah Rafa comes up with the ridiculous backhand down the line scoop to get the break for 5-3 can he hit that scoop and track that ball down consistently against Novak over the course of three and a half hours right now I don't think the answer is yes. And so, you know, again, if I'm looking, I lean Novak. I, I still think Rafa's going to make it a match. Like, I don't think it's going to be 2-2-2 two, two, and two, the way Rafa's done to Federer over the years at Roland Garros. I would say four tightly contested sets, but I'm leaning Novak. That sounds about right to me. Um, yeah. I'm, you know, and I, I, I'm also biased towards my pre-tournament pick. It's just what happens. And, and I was also, I was also picking Novak, um, at that point. Uh, I think, I think the adjustment that, yeah, and what and, does a Rafa win look like? Uh, a Rafa win looks like, um, Djokovic is having trouble getting his backhand return to the Nadal backhand. Okay. which in the past, that's been a thing. And it just wasn't last year. It was, it actually was in Rome. And then suddenly at RG in the semifinal, it just wasn't, a, it wasn't a thing anymore. And Djokovic was hitting backhand returns down the line and inside out. We know how hard that is. Um, that's the first thing. Nadal's forehand is bigger and better than Novak's, um, which can still happen. Like I've still, I still think that's a possibility. I think Nadal needs to attack the second serve return. And that's just something that isn't really in his DNA. But I think if he goes back and he watches the 2021 match, I think that might be the thing he regrets most because he was very happy to just go to neutral 
And Djokovic was hitting like 82 mile per hour second serves. Uh, I think against Schwartzman, I checked and it was 86. Maybe attack it, like go after yeah. it. Uh, give that respect to Novak that, okay, I can't play neutral with you. I need to hit that aggressive return. Um, and most importantly, number one thing is uh, he needs to have the fitness to maintain the highest level of intensity. And nobody knows if he has that or not. Yeah, I, I think that's the return positioning in particular is the adjustment I would look for because you're absolutely right. Go back and watch the 2021 match. How many times did Rafa just feel comfortable getting the point to neutral? And that's where the adjustment for Novak, who you could tell at the start of last year's clay court season, identified, I need to be more aggressive with my plus one forehand. I can't just trust my physicality and ride on neutral against Rafa anymore on the clay because it's just not going to work against this newly aggressive version of Rafa on clay courts. It's going to be a fascinating match. And again, I think both of us predicted Djokovic to win the tournament beforehand, neither of us changing our pick now. That said, you could make the argument, especially after his fourth-round victory, that it's Carlos Alcaraz, who's looked better than just about anyone else, despite the fact, excuse me, that he was pushed to five sets against Albert Ramos and faced a match point, but ultimately gets through that. and then Forgot about that. Yeah, exactly. I, I, I just forgot he faced a match point. I didn't I, forget. No, he, it, he almost lost. Five. Yeah, no, faces a match point, gets through that, and the straight set victory against Hachinov to advance. And by the way, if Zverev wasn't just a reprehensible human being, it would actually be this matchup that's most emblematic of the rivalry between us because Zverev was the first guy as I was, you know, really getting into this. And I mean, there's some guys before mm-hmm. this, obviously, but Alcaraz could be emblematic of you as well. And this could be our rivalry moving forward. Now, that's not going to be the case, but you look for Zverev. You know, was down two sets to love, able to advance uh, through that match and alt uh, against Sebastian Baez, gets a straight set victory against Nakashima, straight set victory today against Zapata Morales, where he did not look particularly good in those first two sets, still manages to get through. That said, there have been times where he served particularly well. I mean, look. This is the ma- like this is the match we wanted. The top eight seeds all held on the top half of the draw. We get the ideal uh, quarterfinals in Djokovic Nadal in Alcaraz Zverev. I could make the argument that this is the more important match moving forward because, with all due respect, while Rafa Novak is a legacy deciding match, we know the stories for those two. Their book is written. They're going to be etched as maybe the two greatest players we'll ever see in men's tennis. Zverev and Alcaraz is is a rivalry of the future. This is, again, a table-setting sort of match. Who's the guy moving forward? And all of us are ready to crown Carlos Alcaraz and say he is the guy. And certainly he's put himself in that position. That said, of course, he has never been in a Grand Slam semifinal before. Zverev was in the semifinals of the French Open last season. I'm really excited for this match. Like, I— uh, because again, the heaviness of the Carlos Alcaraz inside-out forehand—it really helps to be six foot six and have an exceptional backhand. Oh wait, that's exactly what Alex Virov has. Really helps to be able to win some free points on your serve when he's serving his best. Alex Virov can do that. That said, if you're tentative for even a moment and you build this two sets to love lead, you know who's not going to be afraid to be down match points, going to keep swinging and just tear you to death and is definitely the most explosive mover right now no question better than Novak in my opinion better than Rafa as a mover right now on the clay no one changes directions like Carlos Alcaraz I am thrilled for this match and I'm just curious where you are going into this one 
Um, do you rule out the possibility that it's like the Madrid final? I do, particularly given that we already saw that Madrid final. And I just think it's really hard to roll someone twice in a row, particularly at this level, particularly given the fact that, look, there is a full day off for both of these players. And yep. look, to your point, if there's an excuse, Alex Virov's going to find it. Um, <laughs> but I just... Did you see he was mad that he yeah. didn't get the night Are session? we sure he was actually mad? Like, uh, is that no, real? No, we're not. We're, we're not sure, actually. That's what I'm saying. I, I never I know about bit... those tweets. No, because I saw that tweet going around. Yeah. And I yeah. didn't read the press conference. But does it sound like something Alex Virov would say? A hundred percent. He's lost <laughs> the benefit of the doubt. That said, like... You know, it actually helps Zverev because at least his serve now will fly through these courts a little bit easier. Like a night session neutralize. I think the night session neutralizing his serve is way more important than the night session. And like, I think if you're Alex Zverev, don't you want to play this match during the day? Yeah. Well, well, he was complaining about playing Zapata Marias during the day. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm just saying like, it, it was. Yeah, it was nonsensical. But yeah, it's I, like I, that's what I'm saying. This guy's whatever. We'll see, man. But okay, so so here's the thing. Um, I I do think there is a bit of a matchup red flag with Zverev and Alcaraz. Now, by the way, I agree with you. I can't see a repeat of the Madrid final in a match that means this much to both players. Best of five. This is a major. We're we're gonna get. You know, it's like in the playoffs, you get a better product unless it's the Eastern Conference Finals, Celtics Heat. Um, in which case, it's a blowout every game. Um, the drop shots from Alcaraz, that's an issue. Uh, Zverev is extremely susceptible to getting drop shotted because he likes to retreat from a court position standpoint, especially to defend. You know, he's not, his defense is tremendous, but he doesn't have the quickest first step. I think that might be why he likes to back up and give himself some time because I think his straight line speed is uh, is fast, and and that's why he defends so well when he when he gets back there. Um, and then you know if you can bring him in, if you can draw him forward, I understand he's worked a lot on the volleys. I I I think he's much improved there. He's still not good, and I, I saw Holger Rune absolutely spam the drop shots against so Verev in Munich. With you. He's not good, but he's no longer a bad volleyer. Yeah, I but thought if you bring him in against yeah, but, his will. So you might be right. No, you are right. But if you watch the ending of that Baez match closely and you watched him against Zapata Morales when he needed to turn it on, he was more comfortable moving forward. In particular, against the Baez ma- in the Baez match in the third set, the first 30% of, uh, of the fifth set, excuse me, the first 30% of the volleys were atrocious. The last 70% of the set... He was executing first volleys. And, and did Baez have looks that. at second passes? Yes, but they were tough looks at second passes. And half the time, it's making the first volley with depth and not fluffing it. And he doesn't fluff it like 80% of the time now, which is a big jump. Like, he has gotten better. Yeah, he can he can volley well. Uh, I, I'm with you there. Yeah, like, it's not Taylor Fritz is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, he's not he's not hopeless. It's not, yeah. like, pathetic. Um it's not even to the level of like, uh, I don't know, his volley is much better than Hatchinov, who Alcaraz just played. I also think his second serve is not as good as his overhead. Like if he hit the o- the second serve like he hit the overhead, he wouldn't have the serving issues. Alex Zverev has good overhead. 
I have no opinion on his overhead. Uh, I I am an overhead connoisseur after these two weeks in Champagne because let me tell you that is what will ruin a player, a college player, in a big moment is they'll go for the overhead and it looks like you and I out there at times. Yeah. Um, and I mean that happens to Zverev too in some moments, but I actually think he's more confident hitting the overhead than he is a high volley. Okay. Yeah, I could see that. Um, it's also though. What do you do with the drop shot when you get there? Yeah. And we see players like Alcaraz and Nadal who are not only fast but have amazing hands. They have the redrop and they have the short angle and they can punch it deep with precision. Uh, I also just think Zverev with his hands, it's not awesome. So I I see Alcaraz throughout the course of this head-to-head getting a lot of joy out of his favorite weapon which is his dropper and i do think zverev can get a little stiff moving you're absolutely right i think laterally that's when he's at his best on the clay i think you can because he will camp six to 12 feet behind the baseline to show off those defensive skills he's susceptible to the drop shot you're absolutely right if alcaraz executes well on that drop shot we could see some facsimile to the performance we saw in madrid with that in mind is carlos playing was the Carlos, in my opinion, I'm not even going to ask it. You know what? This is my show. You know, you know, I'm hosting <laughs> this episode. Um, I think Alcaraz's performance today against Hatchinoff was the best I've seen of anyone because Karen didn't play poorly, particularly in that second set. It was striking the plus one forehand with ease, was putting a ton of returns in play to pressure Alcaraz. It didn't matter. And when Alcaraz consolidated, his break for, consolidated the break for 5-3 on the 40-30 game point, he unleashed on an inside-in inside forehand where it was just like, okay, that's what Prime Rafa would do. That's what Djokovic last yeah. year was doing with the forehand on the clay courts. And right now, Alcaraz hit that gear that, as well as Djokovic is playing, as well as Rafa played at times during the match against FAA, I think Alcaraz has hit that gear more consistent. Uh, his match today was the was the best start to finish performance I'd seen from anyone in the tournament. Is yeah, I would. Uh, I I think it. I think it is. I thought he was exceptional against Corda. Also, yeah. I do think we need to be a little bit weary though of Alcaraz being the most highlight real player in the game by far. When he and looks remembering, good, he looks so good. Exactly. I yeah. mean, I, I always said, you know, I said this when I went to Indian Wells and I saw him beat RBA, I think one in love or something. Uh, it was pathetically uncompetitive. And that was my favorite match. Mm-hmm. Like I had more fun watching Alcaraz deliver a bagel because he put on such a show, then uh, then I enjoyed you know Fritz and Munar in a third set tiebreak, right? Uh, because that's how box office and highlight reel he can be. So I do think we need to keep in mind that with Alcaraz, sometimes it's going to look really, really, really sexy, but that's not actually going to determine if he's going to like beat a Novak Djokovic, and it's really going to be oh like are you going to not make unforced errors? Uh, because the, the highlight reel, the winners, the spectacular offense, that's always going to be there. It's just about, uh, can he limit the mistakes? Um, which is a lot easier to do also against, you know, a Karen Hatchnov than it is against some of these guys who just hit with uh, a little bit more intensity and put more pressure from a movement standpoint. So ultimately I don't, 
I don't want to read too much into uh, the Alcaraz performance, but yes, it's it's scintillating. Yeah, well said. With that in mind, I've kept you long enough. Any final predictions, thoughts, things we didn't cover on today's show? Do you have a take about Virginia and Texas winning the team national championships that I didn't let you get to? Hook them. And um, I don't know if it's go who's like they're an ACC rival. Oh, it's oh, um, yeah. <laughs> there so okay. Hold on, time out, time out. Let's unpack this a little bit. We are yeah. gonna do one more topic. Does Syracuse have a rival? Are they good enough at any sport to to have earned or still to have earned a rival? <laughs> and under what like I'm thinking like men's lacrosse, Virginia, Syracuse 2009, like maybe. Men's lacrosse is actually like, okay, look, I know it's been, it's been a while since Syracuse men's lacrosse won national championship and it's not, it's not been the best era, but traditionally Syracuse men's lacrosse is like a Duke. That's like the Michigan football of like, yeah, we were great in 1986 when there were four teams, but like now there's actually a division one lacrosse program. Right. But it's like Duke basketball where a lot of people are like, well, Syracuse is our rival. And then Syracuse is like, yeah, but like. Not yeah. actually like get yeah, out of our level like, first. And then exactly. Okay. Right. So anyway, <laughs> like uh, the answer to your question is, you know, the big East stuff remains and Georgetown is the rival. And then, you know, we, we have this thing going with Duke where, yeah, it's a little bit embarrassing, but we're kind of like, Oh, it's the Duke game. Right. And that's the big game. And then Duke doesn't give a shit. So <laughs> it's kind of embarrassing. Um, is this something you guys talked about at the 2 a.m. hour of the New House radio program? This was it. Is how do we get Duke to respect us? Prime time. Yeah. Oh, prime that's, time. Is that a 6 p.m. hour? Or are we talking radio of 2 to 6? Look, I had some killer talk shows. Prime time. Give me your best. A, what was your best A block? Give me your best opening segment. Prime time, new house radio. You're at the 2 p.m. hour. People are making that commute. They're hearing Gil Gross in their ears. The best day block. Was it like, what's the young, like Benny Bayheim? No. Best commit easily, of the Bayheim era? No, I, it's defending the zone. It's oh. definitely <laughs> defending the zone <laughs> because people get mad. Whenever Syracuse plays bad defense, right? And then they're like, the zone doesn't work anymore. And I'm like, dude, you do realize you can play bad man, right? Like teams play bad D, like, and they play man. So do you think you just switch from a zone and the D is good? And and people in Syracuse just have this thing where all bad defense is because of the zone. And <laughs> my one task was to was to take all of the locals yeah. of central New York and to try to get that through their thick skulls that nobody wants to see Buddy Beheim playing man defense. <laughs> I'm so jealous you got to do segments on the two three zone. That actually was probably exceptional. I'm trying to think of the tennis equivalent of that argument right now. And it's probably the GOAT debate. Like, that's probably it on the men's side is the equivalent of Syracuse Radio 2-3 zone, right? Because it's just like Honestly, it's like Wozniacki when she was number one and like her being a pusher. Yeah. It's more like that. Like, is this a real, is this real tennis? Well, is, is this a real number yeah, one? Is Isner good for the game? Is that, yeah, is, yeah. That's, that's the good equivalent. <laughs> yeah, I like that. Um, 
No, I mean, that's exceptional. And again, that's why you're very good at your job. And everyone can hear you Monday Match Analysis, 3 A Tennis Show, all on your YouTube channels. You can find them as part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network as well. With all of that said, of course, we promised too many break Monday here. This is the men's show. Do an equivalent women's show as well. And then we're going to go daily. Rest of this 2022 French Open as we try to provide all of you listeners with the information we know that you all deserve. How about this? If Zverev wins, you got to come back on this show this week. If Alvarez <laughs> wins, I suppose I'll loan some time to you if you need me as well, just to you know keep some semblance of the rivalry alive. With that said, you stick in Djokovic, Tsitsipas, Djokovic in the end. That remains the prediction. Yes. Yeah, I think that's where I am as well. Nah, I'll go Djokovic center. I I've, I feel like I've just invested too much into this center take, and yeah, I need to see it. The run is there. The opportunity is there. Let's see him make a breakthrough. But again, you guys can all go follow. Is it at Gil underscore gross? I believe yes. that's the Twitter mm-hmm. handle, of course, to find everything else. And uh, again, a shout out, as always, to super producer Daniel Westoff for the f- of an editing job he does day in, day out, making all this content possible with all that said. For the fantastic former host of this show, Gil Gross, our super producer, Daniel Westoff, our friends at Tennis Point, from all of us here at both Cracked Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. Gil, what do we tell the people? Hey, no. great shot. No, no, no. Otherwise, that's the break. Leave them both in. I appreciate it as <laughs> always, my friend. And we will see you uh, next time. <laughs> see you, Grusky. It was fun.